My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jonathan Garlow. The Two Row Times is a new, free weekly newspaper and a website being produced out of the Haudenosaunee Territory at Six Nations, and being distributed in communities around Ontario, Quebec, and upstate New York. It is inspired by the new moment of Indigenous resurgence we are witnessing across North America and around the world. It publishes original reporting across the local, regional, and continental scales, and it is rooted in a place and a history. Rather than taking a general First Nations perspective or a pan-Indigenous standpoint, it is clearly grounded in Haudenosaunee, also known as Iroquois, understandings and histories of struggle. This includes the treaty and the teaching from which it takes its name, the Two-Row Wampum, which is an articulation of the proper and originally agreed-upon relationship between Indigenous peoples and settlers, which emphasizes the centrality of cooperation and partnership in combination with autonomy and non-interference. Garlow, a Haudenosaunee man and resident of Six Nations, is the publisher of this new venture, and I talk with him about his understanding of the grounding and purpose of the project, about the great things they've accomplished in their months of publishing so far, about their current Indiegogo fundraising campaign, and about their big plans for the future. I spoke with him by Skype to phone from Oshweekin, Ontario. My name is Jonathan Garlow. I've been living on Six Nations Reservation since 1981. I started this newspaper business just a few months ago, but my family has been in the printing industry since 1994. My father is an offset pressman. We started this newspaper um, because of a friendship I had with a gentleman named Mr. Tom Kiefer. We started doing podcasts together. We call it the greatest podcast that no one has ever heard because they've been unreleased. We would get together and just talk about intellectual, academic issues, religion issues, uh, politics issues, things that most people would argue over. Me and him found a way through the two-row wampum to be able to articulately uh, express different perspectives without entering into confrontational situations. And we had quite a nice, friendly rapport and found that it made for really interesting podcasts. So we started recording them. We would look forward to releasing those someday, possibly on the Turo Times website. But that's the history of how the Turo Times began. Uh, we saw an opportunity to assemble a, a newspaper. He has a background in political science, a large background in, in this kind of thing also, as he used to do a number of publications in Toronto. We had an opportunity to start a newspaper, and we did. Uh, we went with it. Started it somewhat underfunded, but we started it anyway. We had enough money that we scraped together from our family and friends and we have quite a wonderful staff. We're almost like an Ocean's Eleven, except there's not 11 of us. But uh, we have all of these people who are experienced in their own department, and we, we brought it all together for uh, for quite a heist, you could say. So uh, tell me about the opportunity that you saw. What made you think that now was the right time to start a paper? We have quite a special opportunity here, I think, with the Idle No More movement and with a seemingly like global call for an indigenous voice 
on a larger arena to be able to use the internet and use social media, Twitter, Facebook, and, and really to be able to get our story out there. Six Nations being the largest indigenous reservation by population, the Haudenosaunee people have always been the driving force behind indigenous politics in this continent for thousands of years, I would say, for hundreds of years at least, indisputably. Benjamin Franklin noted that we were uh, politically sophisticated. He noted that we had quite a society, that we weren't just mindless savages, but that, in fact, we had quite a political sophistication that our neighboring nations, who uh, had their own political systems, uh, looked up to and, and looked at us as a very powerful entity in these lands for a long, long time. And so because of that, I think that it's only fitting that we, we lead the way in, in this new age to be able to raise our voices and to say that these are still our lands. We still have influence here. We haven't been extinguished. We refuse to be marginalized and that we are going to play a part in what happens here in this continent starting now and forever. Because there was a point there where we almost faded away into oblivion. We were almost extinguished. We almost were assimilated into the Canada politic. And we almost did fade away like the buffalo. But we're making a resurgence here. And I think it's a time now with our population growing for us to be able to have our own voice heard on an international stage. Six Nations and the Haudenosaunee specifically are six separate nations. We are the original United Nations, if you will, of indigenous people of this continent who uh, came together for the greater good. And the, the six nations are the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, the Tuscarora, and the Seneca. I think the intent was for our, our UN to be uh, hundreds of nations strong. There are uh, over 600 unique nations within the country called Canada right now who are separate from each other and who have their own culture and customs. There is a specific reserve called Six Nations uh, that I'm from, which uh, is consisted of all six plus the Delawares and the Tutelos and a number of other. Uh, uh, the New Credit uh, Mississaugas also uh, are here. There are Six Nations Haudenosaunee reserves scattered throughout Ontario, upper state New York, and even in Wisconsin. We're scattered about, I think, possibly with intent, uh, separated geographically, uh, although I believe that the purpose of this paper is to unify us in a spiritual kind of metaphysical way or even perhaps in just a national way for us to really uh, not create a sense of identity but just to reaffirm our sense of national identity as Haudenosaunee. Our angle is to reach more of the global stage with a stronger uh, Haudenosaunee identity rather than a First Nations identity or a pan-Indian kind of uh, generic indigenous identity, but a strongly Haudenosaunee Six Nations identity, which is part of our vision and our plan. When you were talking before, you mentioned the two-row, and of course that the title of the paper as well. Explain to the listeners what that means and what the significance of it is. It's something that's very ancient. The two-row itself is a wampum. The Mohawks had early contact with settlers because we had influence right into Manhattan, where the Dutch landed in uh, 1613. And we would extend relationship agreements with these newcomers. Uh, we called them our younger brothers from across the water. And we were quite excited to have visitors. 
the history shows that we were very friendly to our visitors and that we loved them like brothers. Uh, we just invited them in, gave them everything we had, showed them our furs, our, our way of life, our agriculture, our social technology, such as our uh, political systems and our social systems of equality, women's rights, and, and all of these other things that we had developed over thousands of years, we freely shared. The two were wampum is actually a relationship agreement between two separate autonomous entities wherein they might uh, w walk in a relationship together in harmony and peace with friendship and understanding while at the same time maintaining the diversity uh, and autonomy of, of the said entities. And that's what the Tura Wampum represents. It's a living wampum, it's a living agreement, which means it's continual. The Tura Wampum was extended to the British in 1677 and agreed upon by both parties. It's the first one or the first uh, treaty, and I, I would call it the prime treaty of North America. And it gave the British lawful and legal entrance into our territory. I think that the undertones or the overtones of the Tura Wampum shows that we meant it to be a visitor type of relationship because the analogy used was uh, two vessels traveling down the river of life and we recognized that their vessel was a ship and that ours was a canoe, so this is the analogy we explained to them. And we used a ship because we recognized that they were visitors from across the sea and that their ships had to anchor on our shores. And so I think it has kind of overtones of semi-permanence of, of, of visiting because uh, the two-row treaties we'd made with other nations until that point had used the path of life, not a river. But we changed it to river to accommodate our European visitors. It's kind of a sharing treaty. This treaty, I think, you have to take a step back from uh, what you might consider a treaty because most people in Canada are familiar with the numbered treaties, which are a different breed of treaty. They're, they're almost like a contract or a land deal is what Eurocentric, uh, the Canadian population, thinks of when a treaty. They think of Indian treaties being, okay, you give us land and then we give you whatever, like X materials or X money or X whatever. And that's their idea of what a treaty is which is foreign uh, to our concept of treaty. Our, our concept, uh, the indigenous ancient concept of treaty was a relationship agreement. The details weren't really about materialism, but it was more of a, an agreement or memorandum of understanding between the type of relationship we had. And our, our people have always said that we will not be like father and son. We will be like brothers. And so it was a, a brotherhood type of relationship. And then all of the details about land and everything else, that would follow afterwards. But this one was first and foremost. So I think that reanalyzing any of the these so-called surrenders or land deals have to be looked at in the light of the two-row to see if any of these deals do reflect the original prime treaty uh, agreement of brotherhood because unilateral deals of uh, 1.5 million acres for uh, 10 shillings really doesn't fall in line with the two row. And so uh, I think that all of the treaties need to be analyzed through that lens. What is the significance of taking that as part of the name of your publication? Our aim is to not only raise awareness of the Turo and its significance for this entire continent, but also it's something that we want to implement in our business model and also in our everyday lives. So like I mentioned to you before that me and Tom had used the Turo as a basis for uh, creating a podcast and for having a relationship with each other where it wasn't one-sided or unilateral. We implemented the Turo in, into our podcast and then we felt confident that we could implement it also in a, in a newspaper where it would be not just a native paper, 
it wouldn't be just a reserve paper, but it would be for both sides of the two row for settler and uh, indigenous to be able to discuss issues, talk about common interests, and put forward a, a more healthy agenda than the one that's currently uh, in status quo in the, the lands commonly known as Canada. And so uh, Tom being of European heritage and me being uh, solidly Haudenosaunee, we found that we were able to uh, imitate the Turo in a microcosm or uh, in a small way where uh, he would represent the ship, I would be the canoe, and we had a way of being able to exist together in unity without sacrificing our diversity. I didn't feel like I had to conform to his way of thinking. I didn't expect him to conform to mine. And that's one of the main teachings from the two row is a non-interference, where uh, we agreed that we wouldn't steer their ship. They agreed they wouldn't steer our canoe. But through dialogue and through relationship, we would be able to understand each other and discuss any divergent ideas or plans for the future to be able to walk together. So that's one of the greatest things is points where we disagree on actually can become kind of a strength when you know that you're not being challenged to conform, to change to any opposing view. And so it would make for some pretty interesting podcasts, and we hope that it will make for some pretty interesting news where uh, it's not just a native paper, it has a pro-Native bias, a pro-Haudenosaunee bias, but it's done in such a way to be respectful of the non-Haudenosaunee people and to be respectful to uh, our visitors, the Canadians and the Americans, uh, according to the ancient agreement of the Turo, which still exists in this land. So give me an overview of the kinds of things you've been covering in the months that you've been going. Well, we have uh, different sections. We have a local section, which means specifically the Six Nations territory. The Six Nations territory is 50,000 acres. We have a membership of 24,000 members. This is our core readership. We get a lot of stories from this area, and it's what we would call local news. So we would cover things from local sports to local arts. We have many musicians from Six Nations. We'd cover their CD releases or other events that the Sanderson put on by the radio station, that sort of thing to uh, other other issues like local politics, all kinds of coverage from things that are going on here. We have another section of the paper devoted to regional news, which deviates from what the Canadians might consider regional. What we consider regional is Haudenosaunee news from other communities, such as Tynanaga near Belleville, Oneida Territory near London, Ontario, and Aquasasni, Ganasatage, near Cornwall in Montreal, Ganawage, a lot of Canadians might know as Oka, in that area. These are also Haudenosaunee reserves. Those are Mohawk reserves out there. And we consider this regional news. We are also distributed in the upper state of New York to Allegheny, Tuscarora, Cataraugus. These reserves are also Haudenosaunee, so that would also be considered regional news to us. Stuff in there can be events such as the Turo renewal campaign that happened in Upper New York State. We get uh, stories from Tynanaga about things that happened there, such as an award given a young lady in Tynanaga. She won a prestigious award, and for us that's noteworthy news. Just really to value and to honor our brothers and sisters who we don't get to talk to on a daily basis, but we are we recognize we are related to. Many people have cousins and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters who are in these other territories and we're separated. 
And then also in the paper, we have national news. And to us, our national news is indigenous news from across the continent. This kind of covers a large geographic area, but it can be anything that's going on, such as the events that are happening as we speak in LC Pogtog, New Brunswick, that to us is national news, and other things such as that, stuff that you probably would see in CBC anyway. Although uh, we try to have what we would think of as a more fair and balanced reporting, to us, the situation there, people are not protesters, they are land defenders. And so just even the way that we refer to these people will show how you view the situation. We see them as defending the land, and that's in accordance with uh, indigenous worldview, to see that they're protecting the earth, and that's what they're supposed to do. To us, these are normal people. To Canada, they're protesters who are getting in the way of progress. And so these type of worldviews come through in, in simple headlines. From the smallest paper to the biggest, it's been really hard for newspapers to stay afloat and to make enough money to keep going. What's the two-row times approach to dealing with that problem? According to our sources, a lot of the boutique papers, if we want to call them that, are actually doing pretty good, especially ones that are uh, free and are covering like local news. People can really get the big headlines for free on the Internet, that much we know. But um, if you want to find out why there's no white corn for sale on Six Nations, you can't go to cbc.com and find that out. You can't go to CNN. That's something that was headline news for us in our paper. We did explain why there was no white corn, why you couldn't get corn soup, why there was a shortage. We covered that story. We broke the news, and it's something that people wanted, and it's something that people got because there was no price barrier on the paper. And then it was archived online, and so people type it into Google, why is there no white corn? People will find our, our news relevant to them if they're looking for it. As far as advertising goes, we have a advertising team. We're still developing our kit and getting our numbers together, but we have been selling ads, and, and the, the paper is paying for itself. And we're looking at an upward trend here as the paper gains popularity. And as we capture the heart of the people, I think the advertisers and hopefully the larger advertisers will start to recognize that uh, indigenous people are spending millions of dollars at Walmarts, at uh, car dealerships. And their loyalty is something um, you know that I think has been underestimated for the last 20 years. And um, looking at the Six Nations leakage study done by economic development, we can see that we're spending dozens of millions of dollars off reserve, hundreds of millions of dollars off reserve as the years go by uh, on big box items, on vehicles, on housing materials, this kind of thing. And what approaches have you been taking to finding ways to distribute the paper beyond just Six Nations to other communities elsewhere in the province, in the region? It's something that was a high priority for us from the beginning. We faced the options of maybe starting small, like a little closet operation and trying to grow. But we decided to go big from the beginning and to really put the money down to be able to have a distribution network. And so from the very beginning, we, we developed a plan to get the papers across southern Ontario. For the first month or so, I delivered to Toronto exclusively took the papers to places like Anishinaabe Health and Name Res and uh, Friendship Centers and all of the places where my native people are. I was there in person uh, making sure that we got Toronto going. I know that there's 80,000 people there who are probably pretty interested in what we have to say. And I had a whole team who uh, were doing the same thing throughout Ontario. So we had a visible presence in places like Moravian Town, 
Walpole Island, Oneida, Muncie, Chippewa, and, and also in the in the U.S. The territories I mentioned earlier there, where um, we do have a correspondent. He's a columnist, and also he's been helping getting the papers out. Distribution is important to us. We print 20,000 papers a week, and um, someday we'd like to move up to 80,000 or 100,000 that will be distributed throughout the Great Lakes region. I understand that at the moment you're engaged in a, a fundraising campaign. Can you tell me a bit about that? We have an Indiegogo site started up where we're trying to raise some money. Like I said before, we, we scraped together family money to get this thing going. We started the project underfunded. It's doing well, but we've done things such as bringing our computer from home to save a few bucks. We've done things like not paying ourselves and just doing distribution ourselves for a number of weeks and months. We thought that we could try to just put an appeal out to the public, to the pro-Native people who are interested and sympathetic to Indigenous rights, people who understand that it's important for Canada to give Native people a fair chance to present their points of view to the current events that are happening in Canada. And so uh, we thought that we could appeal to our networks of people and that there might be people who would want to back it and support it, people who are able to see ahead and to be able to say, yes, these people have been silenced for far too long because uh, we still are under the radar in many ways. I think that also we're somewhat uh, suppressed with intent by the colonial powers that be because we provide an alternative way of life that is really detrimental to many of the exploitive policies of uh, the capitalist regime and and the anti-environmental stance that capitalism really seems to gravitate towards. And so uh, I think that we really have a real commonality with environmental rights people and and other activists who are concerned about the greater good of humanity and the earth. And that's something that that we align ourselves with and, and we're happy to point towards any ancient agreement such as the two row, which would give a precedence for awesome agreements and awesome relationships. The Indiegogo campaign is something for people who would like to help for us to get our voices out there. What's the coverage so far that you're proudest of? I'm really proud of the coverage we had during the RCMP raid at the LC Pogtog Land Defending Fracking Resistance site. We were live tweeting as it happened. We had a reporter there who was on Facebook sharing news and really keeping things relevant. And a lot of phone calls came in from people who had cousins there. We knew that some of our land defenders were shot there. We had the pictures of the wounds, the bruises that they had because they were, they, they thought they were rubber bullets, but I guess they were bean bags. We published lots of coverage on the snipers that were there with uh, upfront photos that we put across the internet and published in our paper and printed 20,000 of them and sent them across Ontario and, and New York State. So people can't say there weren't snipers there with sniper rifles. I've seen the great difference in the type of coverage that mainstream media was giving where they didn't show any of the sniper rifles. They didn't show the dogs, the kind of like almost like civil rights, angry German shepherds that were there and barking like snarling. And So they didn't show a lot of the things that would probably outrage an average Canadian or at least grab their attention. 
but all they did was show the burning cars on, on mainstream media and say these protesters are breaking the rule of law and the same old line of rhetoric that they usually do. I think I'm most proud of the coverage we gave just to really share a little bit more of an ob objective view on what actually went down there and why. What are some of the key next steps for the two row times over the next six months or a year? Some of our biggest plans are online. We want to develop a stronger presence on the internet. We eventually want to move to a more uh, current model of reporting up to the second news online, publishing uh, online uh, exclusives, and um, breaking stories that are picked up and shared by the big boys, and uh, really pushing the envelope with technology to be able to release relevant, hard-hitting, great, truthful articles online and then kind of assembling them kind of like a best of every week and then publishing those in the paper with maybe a few exclusives for print. That will take a little bit of work because we come from a traditional mode of publication where we'll design for print, we'll gather our stories for print, and then after they're printed or while they're being printed, they're being uploaded to our website. We recognize that we have an old-fashioned model and it will take a little bit of hard work to uh, switch over because a few of our staff are used, to, you know, they just get kind of set in their ways and they're used to doing it a certain way. And we have to really convince them of the viability uh, of the web. I hope and we're developing plans for our web presence to pay for itself and perhaps someday to carry the company. That being said, we also want to hire on more staff to be able to uh, have, you know, a larger paper. In all of our research we've done, we realize that uh, we won't really be able to be sustainable unless we're larger. So we need to get up to 32 pages, which requires more layout time, more reporting, and more advertising sales. So we have to um, increase our staff. We have to get more um, advertising sales people, more graphic designers. I'm, I'm doubling up on graphic design duties. So like on Tuesdays, I'll be slugging it out in Adobe InDesign and doing layout just to to help for now but eventually we want to have you know people dedicated to that we have about uh three graphic designers now including myself but we'll need to increase uh, that number and also to have you know, a lot of journalists working for us as well uh preferably indigenous but pro native is just fine because it falls in line with the two row you know just people who are good at what they do and are concerned with getting the truth out there in a way that will benefit our nations is is really the way to go. And we're moving towards that goal every day. You have been listening to my interview with Jonathan Garlow, publisher of the Two Row Times, a new newspaper and website being produced out of the Haudenosaunee territory at Six Nations. You can find their website at tworowtimes.com. That's all one word, tworowtimes.com. Their current fundraising campaign goes until Friday, November 22nd, and to donate, you can go to Indiegogo.com and search for Two Row Times. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link marked Radio. That's TalkingRadical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 